All right, well, good morning. You know, it occurred to me as Chuck was praying for our public servants that we actually have the opportunity in person to thank one of them. I'm sure that we have several public servants here, but we have one in uniform, and that is Officer Eric Good from the Fort Lauderdale Police Department. And... Uh, Much deserved, much deserved. And he knew that was coming because I did it in the first year. And he, and he stayed, you know, right? Like he stayed. So uh, I'm grateful for that. Eric and, uh, and his wife, Katie, are members of our church. So we've gotten to know them as, as people, as friends. They make the most beautiful children. We credit her for that, honestly. She's, uh, but, um, but yeah, fun fact about Eric. So he trains the dogs for the BSO. We went to his house. He had nine dogs that he's on the side also training. He's got like a dog treadmill, which... For the record, we have ordered one of those now, so pretty awesome, and he cured our dog of being like super crazy on the leash. Like I walk our dog at 10.30 at night, or I did, to avoid people and other animals, and then when I'd run into somebody, I'm like, oh no, you know, we got to turn around, you know, like, okay, 12 minutes, 12 minutes, and she's healed. It was amazing. So anyway, fun fact about Eric. I told him if he could do that for kids, he's going to be a billionaire, and that probably isn't going to happen. All right, so as we return to our study today of the book of 1 Kings, we come to 1 Kings chapter 21, where we once again encounter the wickedness of Ahab, the king of Israel, and the wickedness of his even more wicked wife, Jezebel, who together have a neighbor right next door. He's a good man. He's a righteous man. He is very much unlike the king and the queen. His name is Naboth. Naboth has the unfortunate circumstance of owning the vineyard that is immediately next to the palace of Ahab and Jezebel and of having the vineyard that Ahab has now set his heart on. In other words, Ahab looks at the vineyard and he's thinking, hey, that'd be kind of a nice add-on to the royal property. And in fact, I'm going to make it one of my gardens if I can get my hands on it. He goes out and hires a landscape architect and he's planning it all out. Like he's got the drawings, you know, he's like, we're going to put a chair here. We're going to put some shade and create some shade. And then we're going to put this over here. And I want a little waterfall here. We're going to create this thing, first thing ever, called a lazy river. Okay, and then we're going to get these big blow-up, like, inner tube donut-looking things, and we're going to float around, and the servants are going to bring us drinks. And I'm like, he knows exactly what he wants to do with Naboth's vineyard. So he goes to Naboth, and he makes him a deal, which sounds pretty cool, because you're thinking, man, I've got a buyer with really deep pockets. Can I buy your vineyard? Okay, you know what? If you don't want to sell it to me, how about this? I've got these other choice properties. I'm going to lay before you a portfolio of options, and we can trade, like either sell it to me or trade it with me, but whatever you do, you've got to give me your vineyard because, you know, I've got the mock-ups and the drawings and the whole deal, and the whole family's excited about it, and it sounds like a great deal. Like if you're Naboth, you're going, hey, that's pretty reasonable. I thought you said Ahab was a bad guy. I did, and he is, and this request is evil. Why? Because property back then worked very differently for those people than it does for us today, okay? Like, I'd be pretty excited about it, and probably I'd cash in at this point, because, you know, we need a new roof. But, but Naboth cannot, in good conscience, do that. 
See, the land of Israel was promised to the people of Israel through their father, Abraham. This is the promised land. And when the people of Israel were led up into the land of Israel by Joshua, okay, it was divided up into tribes, but parcels of each tribe were given to the different families within Israel. And this parcel of land is the ancestral heritage of the family of Naboth. And it is as such a sacred gift from God himself. And it's been passed down to him as a trust generation by generation by generation by generation to him. And what is one of his obligations and duties before the Lord in life and before his family? It's passing on to the next one. And then they to the next and to the next and to the next. You get the idea? Like nobody who understood that, that had any faith at all in God, would ask this man to do this. But, you know, it's Ahab. So what is Naboth going to do? Because he's in a tough spot. Like I'm guessing he called the family together and went, guys, we've got a problem. Like the king, and they know the king. He's a tyrant. He's a murderer. He does not take no. The king wants our ancestral heritage. Now what? Because they know what the right thing to do. The right thing before God is for Naboth to go and to be really, you know, conciliatory and to come with like a fruit basket or something, you know, and and try to send cards and letters and roses to Jezebel and we bought you a cruise, O king. And, you know, like, what can we do to make peace with you? Because we can't say yes to this. We have to say no. And he says no. And so Ahab goes home, you know, he's all dejected, you know, he's pouting. <laughs> anyway, and his wife sees him pouting. And she's like, what's, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, I went to Naboth and I offered him this and then he didn't want it, so I offered him this and he didn't want it, I offered him this. I held before him the whole portfolio of our real estate holdings. I said, if you can't take the money, at least take a different piece of the promised land. Like, let that be your ancestral heritage going forward. I had the landscape architect. I got the lazy river dream going. Like, he shattered the whole thing for me. He said, no. His wife says, well, wait a minute, bud. Like, you're the king of Israel, right? Like, tell you what. Just relax. I got this. She goes over to his desk. She sits down at the desk of the king. She pulls out the letterhead of the king with the pen of the king and the name of the king as if she's the king. She writes a letter to all of the elders of the city. And she said, guys, this is what you're going to do next. So you're going to proclaim a fast, which is something, by the way, that only the king could do. And it was something that typically was only done when it was thought that maybe somebody committed a sin that threatened to bring divine judgment down upon the nation. You're going to proclaim a fast. You're going to have a little gathering at at, at the fast. You're going to call Naboth to the fast. You're going to put him on this side of the table. Then you're going to take two worthless men whom you have paid off, and you're going to have them accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. And everybody's going to go, oh, that's the sin. And then you're going to take Naboth, even though you know he's innocent, outside the gates of the city, and you're going to execute him. And not just him. All of his sons. You're like, you know, I didn't see that this week in, in this chapter. Well, it's not in this chapter, but when you get to Second Kings chapter 9, there it is. Now, why would they have to execute the sons? Well, I mean, you know, if Naboth's dead, his son takes over. That one dies, then the next son. You get the idea, unless they have kids, in which case their son, somebody is going to inherit this thing. So he's got to wipe out all of the males in the entire family line of Naboth. And that is exactly what they do. And Ahab comes right in with his landscape architect. He's super jacked. He gets the place for free. 
And here's the person whose perspective I want you to consider this story from, because I feel like she's forgotten somehow. But she's the most affected. Think about all of that from the perspective of Mrs. Naboth. She has lost because her husband did the right thing. Her husband, all of her sons, and not only that, but because this is ancient Israel and she's a woman, she lost all of her possessions. She couldn't inherit the land. The land is where all the wealth was. So she went from a woman who had a life plan. It is, I'm going to live out life with my husband and he's going to take care of me for the rest of my life. And if he dies before I do, no problem. I've got this line of sons and they're going to take care of me. And we have this ancestral heritage and it's probably a pretty choice piece of property. I mean, it's right next to the palace. So it's got to be nice. She went from being somebody who was very comfortable in terms of her material possessions and so forth to being someone who is now a pauper in Israel, a widow in Israel, the most vulnerable person in that society. Wow, that's a bad day. So let's say you're her friend. You live then. What do you tell her? What do you say? How do you counsel her? I mean, look, here's one thing I'm sure you would do. You would just hug her, would you not? I mean, this lady, and if you love her, if she's your friend, she just needs to be held and she needs to be able to weep and you would weep with those who weep in this moment and it would not be hard to do that. I'm sure you would just be a listening ear. You know what, honey, just let it all out. Like say whatever it is you want to say. All your unprocessed thoughts, all your unprocessed feelings, all the raw hurt and pain and anger against the king and against his wife and maybe against the Lord. Like whatever it is that you've got in here, I'm safe. You can bring it out here. Great. But what happens when she gets to the place where finally with her tear-stained face, she looks at you and says, all right, so here's what I got to know. Like how do I process this as a person of faith? What do I do with this? Where would you take her? Because it feels like there are a lot of things that would be helpful. So, for example, the Bible says a lot about heaven, and we massively underestimate heaven, even though our lifespans here are zero, almost, in comparison with the eternity of heaven. Like, if you live five years or you live 105 years, neither lifespan is long, in comparison with the eternity of heaven. And the Bible comes to us with a heaven that is so great, we so underestimate this, that if when we finally get a grasp of it by faith and fight our way through all of this devastation or at least enough of it to be able to see that clearly, that with gritted teeth perhaps, it's so good there that we would say, man, even if I had the power to bring you back, I love you, and it's so good there. I would leave you there. And they wouldn't want to come back. They'd be like, hey, listen, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with eternity now, so in about three more minutes, even if you live to 105, you're going to be here with me. That might be helpful to Mrs. Naboth. I think a conversation about what the Bible says about justice would be helpful to Mrs. Naboth. She has got to be super ticked. Would you not be so like, I don't even know her and I'm ticked. If I was her friend, I'd be on fire. Like, you have got to be kidding me. Would it not be helpful to know that we have a God who is altogether faithful? You can trust in what he says. And he comes to us in moments like that and he says, okay, so here's the deal. Either in this life or in eternity or maybe even in both. We'll see. I'll play it out by my wisdom. But vengeance is mine. I will repay. Not might, not hopefully, 
God, I can trust you with this judgment, with this vengeance, with this yes. And in the doing of that, I can let go of all of the bitterness that so easily creeps in. It's almost unavoidable, isn't it? I mean, we're people. Hard to fight. I think probably not on day one, probably maybe not in month one, maybe not in year one, but at some point, as you counsel with Mrs. Naboth, as you walk through life together with her as her dear friend, probably it would be helpful at some point to get to a place where you say, you know, our God is so great, and that's the problem. We underestimate how great God is. Our view of him is too low. Our God is so great that in ways that we cannot comprehend, and he tells us things like this in the word of God, somehow something good is going to come from this. Can you imagine saying that to Mrs. Naboth? She'd probably punch you on day one. But like at some place, we've got to go, you know what, again, he's not working off of five years or 55 years or 105 years. He's working off of eternity, and he's so great that even though we can't figure out how, somehow something is going to come from these sufferings that are redemptive. You're going to learn things about God. You're going to learn things about yourself. You're going to learn things about this world and all of the things in it. You're going to learn things about the next world and develop a heart for it, by the way. Through this, trust God. He's going to work in all of this somehow. He says he will and therefore he will. But I think that if I was her friend and I lived all the way back then and I was dealing with the Bible that she had then, which did not include yet the New Testament, but certainly points toward the Jesus of it, and I had one shot, I think I'd go to Psalm 44. And what happens in Psalm 44, the psalmist builds, hear that word, it's a word of construction, a lament of, to God. He builds this lament in which he ascends into the presence of the Lord and he brings you with him. And then he burst through the doors of the chamber of God and he says to the Lord what it is that Mrs. Naboth and all of us in our Mrs. Naboth-like moments want to say to God. Like when we get to this part of the psalm and it's where I want to go, you're going to want to give this guy a hug. You know, it's like COVID, we're high-fiving, we're hugging it out, you don't even have to hold your breath. I don't care. Because you just articulated all of the craziness, all of the stuff, all of the things that I've wanted to say by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. He writes out where we're at in that moment and then he gives voice to it and it's beautiful. And because that's the part of the psalm that I want to get to, I want to tell you about the rest. So I've been using language of construction. I said he builds a lament. And the reason that I said that is because what he does with his poetry is he builds what I'm going to call a literary ziggurat. And I know that puts all of you to sleep immediately. Stay with me, okay? I didn't just shift into like a lecture. I'm going to... This is important, and it's actually beautiful. Do you know what a ziggurat is? I'm going to show you a picture of a ziggurat. So there it is. The ancient peoples understood this. And what is it? It's a stairway to heaven. That's really what it is. It's a stepped pyramid with its roots in the earth and its uppermost chamber that is painted blue color of the sky in the heavens. And the idea is that you would stand at the foot of this thing and you would look up and on a cloudless day, which is what most of their days are like over there, you wouldn't know where the pyramid ended and where heaven began. And the idea is that it pierces the heavens. And so as a person, an earthling, you would walk up the steps all the way up to that upper level where the chamber is. And it was thought by these ancient people that the God would descend from the heaven, which is pierced by the ziggurat. And in that upper chamber, 
That's where you meet. And so what does the psalmist do? He builds ten lines of poetry as the foundation, upon which he puts eight lines, upon which he puts six lines, upon which he puts the upper chamber, four lines. And what does he say in the foundation? He's taking us up into the presence of God. He's saying, oh, you're Mrs. Naboth. Okay. All right, so when you're living in the land of disillusionment, which is where she lives? It's where you live. When things fall apart for you, I mean like, wow, fall apart for you. It's shattering. It's, it's confusing. It's disorienting. It's surprising in ways you don't want to be surprised. It violates all of your expectations. It rewrites sometimes your whole life. Like, it is really something. And so when you're Mrs. Naboth and you're living in the land of disillusionment, he says, focus on God's faithfulness. It's the first part of the foundation. Why? Because God's faithfulness is the first thing that we are tempted to doubt. And I want to say this to you. You choose what you focus on in life. So I'm going to give you an example of that. When my grandfather died, this is years ago, my dad's dad, he was 87 years old, he was in great health, he was super sharp mentally, and he was the caretaker for my grandmother who had had a stroke and she was pretty disabled at this point in life. And it was working out great for them. And so she was asleep one day, he leaves her a little note, I'm running to Publix, I'm getting some groceries, I'll be back. Leaves her the note, never comes back. Why? Because he gets to Publix, he buys his groceries, he puts them in the trunk of his car, and he starts driving east back toward Federal Highway or US-1 down in Miami where there's a bus lane that runs up the west side of the road and creates two sets of stoplights. And the far set of stoplights were green, and the close set of stoplights were red. He blew the red light. Clearly, it's on camera. Goes right in front of a bus that's traveling full speed. It hits him on the driver's side door, kills him instantly, drives him 100 feet down the road. Someone runs to the scene immediately, not to check to see if he's okay, but to steal his wallet and his watch and anything else that they could get out of the car and to take off with that. And then they went out shopping and they bought all kinds of crud with it, you know, and I mean, certainly wonderful, lovely human being. And so anyway, all of this happens. And what I remember of this is the night of the viewing. So my parents are more introverted than me, okay? Like, I'm moderately introverted. They're more introverted. They are wonderful and amazing people, and if you went to dinner with them one-on-one, you would absolutely love them. But my dad is like the last guy who's going to work a crowd. He was working the crowd. He was walking around, shaking hands, giving people... Like, he was joyful. It was bizarre. And so later I talked to him. I'm like, what? You know, like, what, what was that? You know, <laughs> what possessed you to do that? And he taught me something that I'm never going to forget. He said, you know, Tom, he said, we get to choose how we're going to respond to something. He said, I can choose to be hurt, and I am. I can choose to be confused, and I am. I can choose to maybe be angry with the Lord. And at times I'm like, yeah, hey, whoa, wait a minute. What in the world? Because it's thrown everybody into disarray. He said, or I can step back from it and say, look, I don't get to determine how my life plays out. But I can be thankful for the fact that I had a great dad. He says, I choose thankfulness. And I thought, good move. You know, when you're Mrs. Naboth, and I've shared this idea with you, you find what you're looking for, don't you? 
And what we're looking for, we demand somehow has a resolution for us in the next 10 minutes or at least in the next 10 years or maybe at least within this lifetime, whereas God is working off eternity. He's like, listen, the fruit of this is going to be born 3,000 years from now and we don't have his perspective. And so if what you're looking for in God is the ways that he seems to fail you, well, you find what you're looking for. And the psalmist is like, no, 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 Mrs. Naboth, let me give you a hug. Okay, so here's what to look for. You get to choose. Choose to look for God's faithfulness. Scour the Bible for the stories of God's faithfulness there on every single page. Scour your own life for the stories of God's faithfulness because they're there. Scour the lives of the people you know for the stories of God's faithfulness. They're all over the place. Surround yourself with people who will come to you and and say, God is faithful. God is yet faithful. God is still faithful. God will forever be faithful to you. So the psalmist says, look, I got to lay a foundation for this stairway to heaven and I'm going to start with focus on God's faithfulness, but then I'm going to move to continue to worship remember that no matter what happens to you in life, God is always worthy of your worship and more than that, you need to do it. Examples all over the Bible. You see Paul and Silas, they come in together to the city of Philippi and they heal, they, they deliver a demonically possessed slave girl from demonic possession. I think we'd all agree that was a good move on their part. You know, she's happy, they're happy, that's a good gift that they just gave to her. And what was their reward in that day? They were arrested, they were stripped, they were beaten, they were flogged, which was really unfortunate, and then they were thrown into the deepest, darkest part of the town prison, and in the deepest, darkest part of the night, like the story says, at midnight, just so you know, what are they doing? They're praising the Lord, they're singing while all of the other prisoners are looking at them like, what in the world is going on here? You know, we're miserable in this place, and you guys are rejoicing Why? Because of the way you're looking at it. You realize Jesus suffered this like this. He was flogged for me. Jesus was stripped for me. This is almost a reflection. Indeed, it is of the I'm experiencing, in some sense, the love of Christ for me. I have been counted worthy to suffer in the same way that Christ suffered for me. Like, it's a choice. We see it again in Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, You know, forgive me, but I think the Roman Catholics have elevated her too much, and I think that we have demoted her too much. I really do. She was a remarkable, amazing, incredible person whose story we're more or less immune to because we've heard it so many times in life. But think about this. Like, the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, you are going to conceive by the Holy Spirit, the Son of the living God. Like, the Savior of the world is going to come forth from you. Okay, I know we can all agree that's a good thing. What an amazing privilege that completely blew her life up. Small town Mary, who is big on virtue, has brought shame, or so it appears, not just to herself, but to her entire family, in a shame-based culture. Her fiancé, I'm sure she was excited about this, who's a good and righteous man, needed an angelic visitation himself to believe the crazy story that this pregnancy, which was undeniable, was of God. What does she do? She sings. She gives us the magnificent. What about Job? What does he do? The most famous of sufferers, perhaps, apart from Jesus. 
Job in one day loses all of his wealth, he loses his health, he loses all ten of his kids. So line up your worst day next to that one. His wife comes to him and she says what everybody would be feeling at this point probably, and that is just curse God and die. Like, what is even the point at this point? What are you looking for? How are you going to see it? Listen to the godly wisdom of this man. Job 1 verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and he tore his robe. He's saying, My life is like this robe and it has been ripped in half. This is my heart. He shaves his head in mourning. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. Look at his perspective. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. I brought nothing with me into this life and naked I shall return. I'm going to leave everything behind. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's remarkable, isn't it? Perspective. What do you see throughout the Psalms? You find the psalmist again and 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 again doing what we sang, I think, in our first song. I will preach to myself. He speaks to his own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He didn't say, bless the Lord, O your soul. He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he's commanding his soul. He says, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And now what does he do? It's instructive. And forget not all his benefits. And then what does he do? He starts listing them. Who forgives all of your iniquities. Who heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You get the idea? The Lord works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. Just make your way through Psalm 103. Let it speak to you, but learn the methodology of faith. The psalmist is like, listen, we are all Mrs. Naboth in various moments of our lives, not just once. He's like, so here's the deal. I'm going to build a ziggurat, a stairway into the presence of God. And you're going to get to hear what I say when I get there, but we're going to start with a foundation. And it is a foundation in which we choose to focus on God's faithfulness and continue to worship no matter what. And then he takes the next eight verses and he builds the second level. And he adds to that and he says, look, when you're in the land of disillusionment, okay, also, next thing to focus on is the sovereignty of God. Go home today and read those verses. And notice how direct they are. He goes right after the Lord and blames him for the whole thing. You have rejected us. You have made us a byword among the nations. You have done this and you have done that and you have abandoned and you have 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 and you're like, that's pretty much the way I feel. At least when I'm Mrs. Naboth. But far from that being discomforting, disquieting, disconcerting to him, he's leaning into that. He's embracing that. He's acknowledging the reality that whatever it is that's happened to him has happened to him because God has designed it and put it into his life. And he's saying that is good. Hear that. I think a lot of times, you know, when things happen to us that are Mrs. Naboth-like, people want to come and somehow defend God. You know, like maybe they're concerned about our faith or something, and so they, they try to distance God from whatever it is that's been particularly devastating in our lives, and they're like, oh, you know, that the Lord had nothing to do with it. Listen, please don't ever say that. It's not true. 
And when you say something like that, here's what I hear. I hear like, oh, well, I guess I'm just an accident victim. I guess that whatever it is that I'm suffering doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any purpose. It means nothing. There's no possibility for redemption of this because God's not in control of it apparently. But if I'm pressing into the faithfulness of my God, if I'm pressing into the character of my God, if I'm pressing into the eternity of my God, if I'm looking for the perspective of my God, if I'm surrounding myself with people who are talking to me about my God, if I'm finding him in the word and even in my own life and sometimes begrudgingly because honestly I can get a little irritated with my God like Mrs. Naboth must have. Man, it makes all the difference in the world to know that he's designed it to know that he's introduced it. He has either allowed it or he has caused it because that gives me hope that someday he will redeem it. He will bring purpose out of it. So think about that. And what that does is it takes us to the third level. And the third level is interesting. It's six verses. And in the third level, he protests the innocence of his people. So what's happened in regard to the psalmist is they've gone out to battle in faith in God and they have been overrun by their enemies. And he's confused. And the reason he's confused, it's like he's coming to God and he's going, listen, in our history, in our nation, there have been seasons of time in which we completely abandoned you and we worshipped other gods and so forth. And you allowed us to be overrun by our enemies for the purpose of turning us around and humbling us and bringing us back to you in repentance that we might have life and find it again in you. This time, we're actually pretty much all good. I mean, we haven't abandoned you and we're not worshiping the idols and we're not doing this and we're not doing all of these things that you've let us be overrun for in the past don't exist. And yet we went out today and we've been overrun and tomorrow the sun's going to come up and I'm concerned about what's going to happen then. What in the world is going on? Here's what you want to say. We all say it. I deserve better than this. Okay, so this is the toughest part of the message right here. Because I'm looking at a group of really good people, unless you define good biblically, in which case, not so much. Little less. Again, our view of God, way too low. And as a consequence of that, our view of us, way too high. I'm a pastor, Lord, you know, I'm serving you. I'm, I'm an honest business person. I'm a this or I'm a that. Clearly, I deserve better than this. Okay, so here's what the Bible says that we deserve. You ready? The cross. It's the infinite suffering of Christ. But through faith in him, here's what the Bible says that we get. He gets what we deserved, and we get what only he deserves. That is not a bad deal. That's a great deal. I have a friend, I haven't talked to him in a while. They used to live in our neighborhood, and they moved uh, years ago. Um, and they were doing foster care 40 years ago. He's a great guy, love this couple. Amazing Christian people. So like before there was four kids and, you know, everybody, including a lot of us, got involved in foster care. They were just doing it. Like they just were like, well, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. And then they adopted somebody out of the foster care. And she's, you know, an, a great kid, but she had major, major mental health issues, major, major addiction issues. And what they ended up doing at the age of like 68 is taking in their grandkids. So I remember it was this guy's birthday. 
And um, he was turning 69. Well, I remember that. I don't know. And I had lunch with him that day, and I said, hey, man, what, what are you doing for your birthday, you know? And he's like, oh, you know, we got the kids. And I'm like, listen, bring the kids over to our house, these two little boys, and we will marshal the whole family, and we'll watch the kids, and you and your wife go have dinner. He's like, really, you guys would do that? I'm like, of course, yeah, just bring them over, you know? We couldn't wait to give those kids back at the end of the night. I, like, when they showed up, we're like, hey, good, see ya, you know? I'm kidding. I mean, but it was tough. Like, we went swimming. I had the kids in the pool for like two hours. I'm like, wear them out, wear them out, wear them out, wear them out. They would not wear out. I threw these kids across the pool so many times, I thought I was going to have to have surgery. Take that on at 70. 75. 80. Still got them. Now they're teenagers. Praise Jesus. Every time I asked that guy, how you doing? You know what he said? Every time. Without fail. It was almost comical. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. He's right. Christ got what we deserve in truth. We authentically praise Jesus, get what he deserves. So the psalmist lays the foundation and then he builds another layer and then he builds that other layer. And we get down to the last four lines and he comes bursting into the upper chamber and I want you to hear and feel his cry. He gets to the top of the steps and he runs across the little plateau. He gets to the doors of the blue chamber and he throws them open. And he barges into the presence of God and he says, Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. It's about right. What the heck is going on? I can relate to that guy. I'd like to give that guy a hug. Thank you, brother. That's what I've been trying to get to. Like that's in the heat of it how I feel. But he doesn't stop. Then he continues. And he says, redeem us. Now wait. What does that mean? What does that presuppose? It presupposes that God is yet faithful. It presupposes that God is worthy of his worship. It presupposes that God is in charge of all of this. It presupposes that this guy is looking at a disaster that makes no sense at all in his life, and he is believing and trusting in a God whose wisdom is so great and whose perspective is so eternal that he is actually able to bring good out of this. That's instructive. He's looking around and he's going, I can't bring good out of this. Can anybody else? Can you guys bring good out of it? Like when you're Mrs. Naboth, you got to figure it out. You got to, you know, I think I got this, Lord. You stay where you're at. Like, redeem us, oh God. What a faith. For the sake of your what? Certainly not because I deserve it. For the sake 
of your steadfast love. Guys, God's loyalty toward us as his people is not born out of duty or obligation. It is born out of love. And it is a love that is written to everyone who receives it in the indelible ink of the blood of Jesus, who like Naboth is growing a vineyard in this world that is his church, it is his people, and it is a vineyard that is desired by one who is evil. Who like Naboth was accused by worthless men of cursing God and cursing the king. Dragged forcibly, stripped, beaten, flogged, executed outside the city gates. But he's greater than Naboth. Indeed, he's so great that God looked upon that suffering and that death, infinite in its measure. And he said, you know what, I'll take that as the payment, Tom, for your sins and for anyone else who claims it. It's infinite in its ability and scope and its capacity to save and to rescue. Oh man, if you're wondering about the love of God, you see it on the cross. It's remarkable and amazing and then he was risen from the dead to proclaim that message to us. He is victorious over sin and over death, not just for himself, but for me and for you. And that's a victory, guys, that we don't have to wait forever to put our hands on. It's a victory that we can put our hands on now, even when it's hard to hang on to, even when we're Mrs. Naboth, as we just follow the guidelines and the instruction of this psalmist who comes to us and says, hey, by faith, focus on the faithfulness of your God. By faith, worship the true and the living God. By faith, know that he's in charge of all of it and great and wise and good enough to somehow bring eternal good out of it and And trust in his love. Trust in his love. It's there. And it's there for you. So what do you need to do if you're Mrs. Naboth? Or maybe a better question is, what do you need to focus on? Maybe you're focusing on this. And the psalmist is going, I don't know. I got this one. I know exactly how you feel. Focus on this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is one whom we can focus upon who is altogether righteous and pure. He is beautiful of soul, perfect in every way. And God, in love, you sent him to suffer and to die, to endure what I deserve, what we deserve, that we might gain the forgiveness and the eternal life and the inheritance in the true promised land yet to come that he deserves. Lord, I pray that you would pull our eyes off of whatever else it is that we have zeroed in on and place them squarely on him. Heal us with the vision of him. Encourage us with the vision of him. Your faithfulness, your worthiness, your power and sovereignty and love revealed in a person. And the person is him. Give us faith, God, in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.